There is an axiom. Maybe you don't know what an axiom is. An axiom is a, uh, a well-established or self-evident truth. It means that everybody knows it to be true. There's an axiom that goes like this. Present only living, present only living equals certain future failure. Present only living equals certain future failure. I'll say it again. Present only, present only living equals certain future, certain future failure. And again, it's an axiom, which means that Everybody knows this to be true, not just Christians. As a matter of fact, I would say that, if anything, the Christians are the ones that seem to struggle with this. The world knows this to be true because it is true. It is self-evident. It's made itself evident through history. We know that if we believe or operate only on what we can see in the present, that that will mean you are wholly unprepared for the future. Because one day that future will become the present. And if I haven't lived planning for that, then I will again uh, be fail in that future when the future becomes Future success, therefore, requires in the present based on what I believe to be true about the future. That I live in the present based on what I believe to be true about the future. And uh, if you want to know if you're that kind of a person, then I think it's pretty easy how much of your day or the things that you do on a regular basis are things for the future. For the future. I'll give you an example from this world or this life. 401ks. 401ks. Raise your hand if you have a 401k or something like that, a pension. Okay, What are you doing? You're taking your hard-earned money that you earned in the present... And rather than uh, rewarding yourself now by spending that money on something in the present, you are uh, putting it away for something in the future. And for some of us, that future is still uh, many years away. As a matter of fact, it's a future that is not even guaranteed, right? Because uh, I can't start drawing on that, at least without penalty, until uh, I think it's still 65 years of age. And there's no guarantee that I'll make it to 65 years of age. And yet we, we plan, we put that money away, we've earned it today, and yet we take part of that money. In a sense, we penalize ourselves now so that we will have something in that, in that future. In that future. And you could go to anyone in the world and you could, uh, you could talk with them about this. And uh, if they understand this, uh, what a 401k is, understand this uh, this axiom that we're talking about now, they would tell you that that's a wise thing to do. You don't want to be uh, caught at age 65 and not have something saved up. Here, however, is the problem. You can't live for a future you don't know. 
that you don't know. You can't plan for a future that you don't know. That you don't know. And today we're going to, or I'm going to, attempt to help you with that. To tell you what I believe the scripture teaches is, in one respect, a very near future. And something, therefore, that we should, in the present now, uh, be planning for, living according to. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord's blessing in our time, shall we? Father, thank you that we can talk about these things. We know that your word supports this axiom. We are to plan for the future. We as your people, most of all, are to be people who are living in the present for the future. That our decisions today are made according to what we believe about the future. Because we understand that everything we do counts for the future. Lord, I pray as we learn new things today in relation to that future, I pray that this would become all the more important to us, precious to us. Not only in the way that we live, but Father, in the gospel that we preach to others. That it would give to both us and those that we speak this message to an urgency, a new urgency, uh, based on what we learn. And we pray all of these things in the name of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, well, if you'll direct your eyes to the top of the handout there, you'll see the first line uh, reads this way, the little intro there. Though we cannot know the exact day or hour, it's Matthew 24, verse 36. And please note that uh, that's there. I don't want you coming uh, to me or telling others later. Uh, well, Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 36, that we cannot know the day or the hour. You'll see here that uh, I've taken that into account uh, in relation to what I'm going to say. And that is this. Though we cannot know the exact day or hour, the evidence strongly suggests we need the biblical evidence that we be prepared for our king to return in approximately 25 years. 25 years. Again, do, does that mean that uh, we know the day or the hour? Well, even Jesus, again, Matthew 24, 36, says uh, not even the son, not even Jesus, our king, knows the day or the hour hour it doesn't mean that we can't know an approximate given the evidence given by Jesus himself in places like Matthew 24 the context where he says this uh, is uh, the one of the most important texts in scripture for determining that very thing because uh, that is what Jesus is talking about in particular chapter, his return. And there's certain things that he tells us that we're to be looking for uh, to determine when that particular time frame is near, is near. And so that's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning and why I believe that uh, his return <clears throat> is within roughly 25 years. And that's what that term approximately uh, means. 
Uh, it's not an exact, give or take a year or two here or there, possibly. If anything, uh, less than this time, and you'll see why here in just a second. Uh, but approximately, roughly 25 years from now, uh, Jesus will return. Based on what I believe the scriptures uh, teach. And so here we go. Here's my uh, first evidence in regard to that. Year 6,000 meaning the year of the world or the earth, how starting from creation. Year 6,000, when we reach year 6,000, that will mark the end of human history and the return of our king. Year 6,000 will mark the end of human history and the return of our king. And I would invite you to turn then to Second uh, Peter chapter three, Second <clears throat> Peter chapter three, and uh, as your notes say, verses one through ten. Verses one through ten, Second Peter chapter three. Follow along as I read. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Notice he's then wanting to remind them of something. Here's what that is. That you should remember the predictions, the predictions, which uh, tells us that what he's about to say is uh, in relation to something future, right? Predicting something means something that's not yet happened. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Here's that prediction. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? There's the prediction. It has something to do with Jesus's coming or Jesus's return. Scoffers are going to come scoffing or laughing at that. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's been a long time. In other words, nothing's happened. For they deliberately overlook this fact. In other words, when they scoff or they laugh, here's what they're overlooking. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact. Now in relation to us. Don't you overlook this one fact. Beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. Don't overlook that, he says. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to promise this promise of return. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord... Day of the Lord is the return of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come 
How will it come? Like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We'll talk more here in a little bit about that uh, phrase, thief in the night. But there are several things that we are told here or are established, and I just want to go through those based on what we just saw and talked already a little bit about. The first is this. We need to remember that Jesus and the apostles predicted his return. That's what we saw in verses 1 and 2. Remember, he says, you should remember the predictions. The predictions of Jesus and his apostles. We need to remember that. This is something they predicted, his return. Number two, we need to remember also that sinful people ignorant that God has already made good on his promise to destroy this world. He's already done it once. We saw that through the deluge of water. Sinful people ignorant of that fact will laugh at our claims of the king's return and the final destruction of this world in fiery judgment. Remember again, that's what Peter says in verses 3 through 7 and then again In verse 10, the day of the Lord will come. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. It will come. Just as he made good on his first promise, he will make good on this promise. This time the world will be destroyed and the heavens, the entire universe or all of creation, in other words, by fire. The third thing that we are to remember is that God wants us to have some sense of when Jesus will return, so as to be ready versus eternally perish. God wants us to have some sense of that, so that we don't perish like the rest. That's verse 9. He doesn't want us to perish. And the way to do that is to plan for a future that will come. And again, God wants us to have some sense of that. This is Peter's point. Matthew 24, if you put your finger in here just for a second and turn to that text that I have already spoken about. This is Jesus's Olivet Discourse. This is what it's called because he's on the Mount of Olives when he speaks all of these things. Verses 32 through 36. And here we're going to see that... Uh, That phrase uh, concerning the day and the hour, starting in verse 36, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. All of this in relation to his return, by the way, that's the context of these verses, the context of uh, these verses. You'll see this in verse three. If you look over there and he sat as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So again, this is the context for Jesus' discourse. He's speaking to this issue again. The sign of your coming and of the end of the age. The disciples have asked this question, and Jesus is now answering this question. As part of that, again, verse 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. So he's using an analogy now in relation to a tree. He says this, as soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. And we know that, right? In the spring when 
everything begins to bud, we say, okay, summer's close. Based on the signs in the tree, we can tell that summer is close, or as he says here, near. So also, or in the same way, when you see all these things, the things that he has spoken of prior to these verses, when you see all these things, you know that he, meaning himself, is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Going then back to our notes, though once more we cannot know the exact day and hour, we can know when we are, according to Jesus, when we are near. And the time frame that he gives to us to, uh, to really get our arms or uh, more uh, uh, accurately our head around this is a generation of time. Right? This generation will not pass away until all of these things, my return takes place. Now, uh, to put this uh, uh, into uh, its proper context, why he says this, he is talking about his return, but there, most specifically, his first return in 70 AD. And if that confuses you, uh, I'd, I'd be glad to talk with you uh, after the sermon about this. Uh, but for some of you, you remember our study in Revelation, uh, his first return, his symbolic, we might call it, return uh, in 70 AD, uh, approximately 40 years later, which is the time frame uh, of a biblical generation. But again, the principle being established here is the same, regardless of whether it's his uh, first return or his final return. That we can know within a, a, a very short period of time when he will return. At the very least, within 40 years. And so God wants us to have some sense of that. That's why Jesus says what he does and gives the evidence that he does so that we can make these kinds of calculations. Jesus wants us doing that as a means to protecting us from perishing, from living only in the present and guaranteeing future, certain future failure. Number four there in relation to this first point or in relation to what we read there in 2 Peter 3 verses 1 through 10, we must not overlook the one fact. Remember, that's what he says there in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact. We must not overlook the one fact most important to determining when our king's final return is near. And again, within that 40-year time frame. But what is that? Well, according to what we're told in this verse, verse 8, it's this, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Uh, what is it talking about there? Well, according to what is said there, here is uh, really what we're told to not be overlooking based on where that's coming from that we're going to talk about here in just a second. 
And that is this. Here's what we're not to overlook. The ancient Jewish and early Christian belief. The ancient Jewish and early Christian belief. That each day of creation represents 1,000 years of human history. How many days of creation are there? Six. Each day represents 1,000 years. Again, looking at the text. With the Lord, one day is as 1,000 years and 1,000 years as one day. Again, what is that referring to? And we're going to see the support for this here in just a second. But the ancient Jewish and early Christian belief that each day of creation represents 1,000 years of human history or 6,000 years of history to be immediately followed by the return of the king and eternal rest in the new heavens and earth as represented by God's Sabbath or seventh day, which is the day of rest. So one day equals a thousand words. That's uh, what Peter says here. And, uh, or a thousand years. Did I say a thousand words there? One day, <laughs> one day is a thousand years. And each of those days is the, the length at a thousand years. So 6,000 years for six days. Uh, That is the length or the entire time that God will allow this creation to exist. And he will then, or Jesus will then return on what begins the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, the Jews said he must return. As soon as we hit 6,000, he must return on the Sabbath or the seventh day. And again, that is what I believe that Peter is referring to, and hence the reason that he says, don't overlook this. Don't overlook this one fact. Notice he doesn't say this is some kind of a metaphor. He says it's fact. He's giving to us the code for understanding so that we can figure all of this out. One day equals a thousand years. The main source of this belief, the main source of this belief, in other words, uh, where is Peter getting this from? Well, as I said, ancient Jewish and early Christian belief, but where can we find it? Well, non-canonical books. The canon is scripture, so these would be books outside of the scripture containing ancient Jewish and Christian tradition, history, and beliefs. And here's what we need to know about that. Though never on par with Scripture itself, we're not saying that it's Scripture. Even though that's the case, Jesus and the church saw these non-canonical books as important. And so uh, we, I would uh, conclude, need to see them as important as well. He said, well, how do you know that uh, Jesus and the uh, early church or even the Jews, saw these uh, these kinds of writings as also important to uh, understanding what to believe. Well, uh, probably uh, the biggest proof of that is because we find them referenced all over Scripture. All over Scripture. 
meaning that the scripture or the writer's scripture will reference as their support for what they're saying, non-canonical books. Do you get what I'm saying? I'll give you some examples. Let's turn back to Numbers for the first one, Numbers 21. And by the way, this is just a sampling. There are, there are more than just what I've given to you here. Numbers 24, verse uh, 24, I believe it is, or 34. What do I have there? 24. <clears throat> okay. Um, it may be. Yes, chapter 21. Um, let's skip over this text because I, I have my, uh, I, I actually was. Yes. Thank you, Bill. You get a gold star today. <laughs> 2114. Notice what it says here. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb and Sufa and the valleys of the Arnon and the slopes of the valley that extends to the seat of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. Yeah. Notice here what the book of the wars of the Lord. Can you, can you show me that where that is in your Bible? The book of the wars of the Lord. Non-canonical book. Being referenced as support for what Moses, what Moses writes here. Joshua 10.13. Joshua 10.13. <clears throat> And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemy. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. So here you have Joshua quoting from this book called the book of Jashar. And Joshua is using this quote the sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day as support for what he says in verse 13 or the beginning there of verse 13. The book of Jashar. Non-canonical reference. Second Chronicles. <clears throat> turning over to Second Chronicles. We've got several in this book. Second Chronicles nine twenty nine, and I think I missed I, I think I missed my mark again. So I'm going to take a cue from Bill and see if it's uh, nineteen here. Okay, let's keep moving. Instead of nine twenty nine, unless somebody, if you pick it up, shout it out. But twelve fifteen. Look at twelve fifteen, and we're going to miss it again because I don't see it there either. Um, oh, I yes. Gold star. Hey, look, maybe that's the real reason I'm doing this. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Andy. 
at 929 Second Chronicles. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon from first to last, are they not written in the history of Nathan the prophet and in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite and in the visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat? Notice that. Are they not written in the history of Nathan, in the prophecy of Ahijah, and in the visions of Edo? What's our response? I don't know. (laughs) Where do I get those books? You go to your table of contents in your Bible, you're not going to find the vision of Edo. You're not going to find writings from Nathan, the prophet. Remember, Nathan is the one that goes to David with his sin against Bathsheba or his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, the history of Nathan the prophet, right? This prophecy of Ahijah and the visions of Edo. Again, non-canonical sources being used uh, to support what is said. Uh, again, Second uh, Chronicles twelve fifteen. Now the acts of Rehoboam from first to last are they not written in the chronicles of Shemaiah the prophet and of Edo? Here's Edo, the seer. There were continual wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So again, here, uh, now the chronicles of Shemaiah, and uh, as I said, this prophet Edo coming up again, writings uh, from this individual being used as support for what is said in the biblical text. 13.22, we're right there. 13.22, the rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings are written in the story of the prophet Edo. So this guy comes up three times, his writings, this prophet Edo, his visions. Skip over to now the New Testament, Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses uh, 9 and 10. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. This was fulfilled. Then was fulfilled, rather, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Where do you suppose uh, what is said here is found in the prophet Jeremiah, meaning the book of the Bible? Well, if you were to attempt to look for that in the book of Jeremiah, you would never find it because it's not there. And uh, we're really not sure as to uh, what Matthew is referring to. And so the only conclusion that we can draw is that this was part of oral tradition. Meaning something that was uh, never written down, but was spoken, that was passed on only through words. And so uh, things that Jeremiah spoke included this, but it was never written down in the book of Jeremiah, or what we call today the book of Jeremiah oral tradition again scripture referencing here in this case matthew referencing 
oral tradition as support for what he's saying in relation to Judas. 2 Timothy 3.8. And these next two uh, go together, and I'll tell you why here in just a second. 2 Timothy 3.8. Here, uh, Paul is... uh, Warning about times of difficulty that will come in the last days. Last days referring to the time just before Christ or our king's return. And he talks about the kinds of people that will exist in that day, having the appearance of godliness. They look like or they claim to be godly people, but deny its power. These people, just as Janus Jambres, verse 8, opposed Moses, So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Where's he getting that from, Janus and Jamres? Well, where he's getting this from is a book called The Assumption of Moses. The Assumption of Moses. This is what's called an apocryphal book. It's a non-canonical Jewish writing. And in that particular book, we find uh, these names, Janus and Jambres, who were supposedly among uh, those magicians or sorcerers that uh, uh, were put before Moses on behalf of Pharaoh when uh, he turns his staff into the snake and they do the same and so on and so forth. Janus and Jambres. Where is this coming from again? Well, a non-canonical source. Paul is quoting it here as fact. As fact. I said uh, the next two go together, this one and also uh, Jude 9, Jude verse 9, Jude verse 9, where we read these words, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Again, where do we find that in the Bible? This uh, dispute between uh, Michael, the archangel, and uh, the devil over uh, Moses' body. You don't. You find it in the assumption of Moses. That, too, comes from this non-canonical source, the assumption of Moses. We have another reference here in Jude. It'll be our final example, and that's verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14, or 14 rather, and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, about these ungodly people that he has spoken about in the previous verses, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying... Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. This too comes from a non-canonical book known as First Enoch, which was written many thousands of years after the time that uh, Enoch, the Enoch that he is referring to here, uh, the seventh from Adam, that first Enoch who walked with God and was no more. uh, Thousands of years later, we have this prophecy called the 
called One Enoch, or there's One Enoch and Two Enoch and Three Enoch. There's, there's multiple books attributed to uh, Enoch that were written thousands of years later. And at least this portion, we're being told by Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's in Scripture, that that particular portion, at the very least, is true. That did come from Enoch. And so oral tradition, passing these things on for thousands, literally thousands of years before someone finally took the time uh, to write them down. Nonetheless, again, Scripture supporting its position, or the writers of Scripture, the authors of Scripture supporting their position from non-canonical sources. And... The same is true, if we go back to uh, our text in Second Peter, the same is true in relation to what Peter says again in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact. If there's one thing you, you need to make sure you get, Peter says, if you're going to understand as it relates to the Lord's return, that which was predicted, here's the piece you don't want to forget. Here's the clue, the code, the key, whatever you want to call it, to understanding this. To know, as Jesus says, when the time is near. Here's one of the key clues. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Where is Peter getting that from? Well, several sources. Ancient Jewish non-canonical sources, and we could say that uh, this is indeed what they believed with the early church because we find in the early church's writing uh, similar words. So let's go through that now, starting with the ancient Jewish non-canonical sources. This coming from the first two, the Jewish Talmud, which is just a collection over hundreds of years or centuries as a means to preserving a lot of their oral tradition, similar to what was done with uh, the books of Enoch. We have the Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of, of these things, ancient Jewish beliefs or oral tradition, after the destruction of the temple. And here's uh, two quotes that are relevant to what we're talking about now. Here's what they believed. 6,000 years, the world will exist. 6,000 years, the world will exist. And for 1,000, meaning the seventh, it shall be desolate or no longer exist. As it is written, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. So, here's a source telling us what it is that uh, Peter is speaking about back there in Second Peter chapter three, verse eight. This idea of every day equaling a thousand years, or symbolic, or pointing to rather uh, a thousand years of creation. And that totaling again, as it says here, 6,000 years. And once that period of time is over, the earth shall no longer exist. The second there, the world will exist for 6,000 years. And here this particular uh, rabbi breaks it up into uh, thirds. Two millennia or 2,000 years of void. And uh, what is meant by that is without Torah, without the law. And uh, from a covenantal standpoint, uh, you could look at it that way. You have uh, the Adamic, uh, Adamic covenant, or the covenant with Adam. 
that existed during that time. Then you have the Noahic covenant. And then finally, the Abrahamic covenant. And then two millennia of Torah, which means the law. And when was the law given? Under the old covenant. Under the old covenant. And when you look at the timeline, that's, uh, that's when uh, we see the exodus taking place out of Egypt is 2,000 years after creation. And in that time frame, again, Mount Sinai takes place or right after that and the giving of the law. And then, as this rabbi says, two millennia of the age of uh, Mosheek, which is uh, Messiah. Uh, we call this the age of the church. So 2,000 years of that. So the world exists for 6,000 years, and this is how it will be broken up. The writings of the second century Jewish rabbi, Eleazar ben Hyrcanus, he said this, and I quote, six eons for going in and coming out for war and peace. The seventh eon is entirely Shabbat and rest for life everlasting. Here is where Peter is getting this idea that one day equals a thousand years and a thousand years equals one day. And this is backed then by the early church. In other words, uh, the early church we know because of things that are written through the church fathers or in uh, specific epistles or one particular epistle. Uh, we know that this is what they believed also. And no doubt they were getting this from uh, people like Peter. So the first is the writings of Irenaeus. We've talked about him before. He was an early church father. He was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. You can see the dates there that he lived, so not very far from the time of Christ and the Apostles. What are the chances that what he's saying is wrong? Uh, well, more likely that he's right. That closer to, as I've said, the epicenter, or when uh, things were first given, more than likely what he's saying is uh, correct. Here's what he said. For the day of the Lord is as a thousand years. Uh, he, him quoting or commenting on this. And in six days created things were completed. It is evident, therefore, that they will come to an end at the 6,000th year. So putting those two things together here, Irenaeus says, that's exactly what Peter's talking about. He's referring to the six days of creation. And each of those days refers to a thousand years. And at the end, they will come to an end. The world will come to an end. The epistle of Barnabas. This is the epistle that I was uh, referring to. Now, church fathers such as Origen and Clement uh, both believe that this particular epistle, known as the epistle of Barnabas, they believe that it was written by the actual Barnabas in Scripture, the apostle Barnabas that we see in Acts 14, 14, as well as other places. It was written around 75 AD, so the time of the apostles. Uh, this particular epistle, this I find highly interesting, was considered so important. They, they did not uh, include it in the canon, uh, but for the first four centuries of the church, it was included as an addendum in the back of early Bibles. So that's how important they thought this particular work was. And here's what Barnabas had to say. Give heed, children, what this means. 
he ended in six days. He means this, that in 6,000 years, the Lord shall bring all things to an end. For the day with him signifies a thousand years. In this he himself bears me witness, saying, Behold, the day of the Lord shall be as a thousand years. Quoting there, 2 Peter 3.8. Therefore, children, in six days, that is, in 6,000 years, everything shall come to an end. The writings of Hippolytus, we've talked about him before, early church father. He said this, and I quote, And 6,000 years must needs be accomplished in order that the Sabbath may come, the rest, the holy day on which God rested from all his works. For the Sabbath is the type and emblem of the future kingdom of the saints when they shall reign with Christ when he comes from heaven. For a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Notice again him quoting Second Peter 3. This is how he also understood that passage. Since then, in six days, God made all things. It follows that 6,000 years must be fulfilled. Okay, so 6,000 years. Number two, then. Adding up the biblical record. Adding up the biblical record. So, in other words, starting from creation and adding up what we have by way of evidence in Scripture through genealogical tables, like in Genesis 5, as well as Genesis 11, as, other, as well as other places where we get other information, putting all of that gather, together puts the current age of the world at around 5,976 years. 5,976 years. That means 24 years to D-Day. Okay? 5,976. Here's an easy way to do it. You can go back and you can do the calculations uh, yourself. It's, uh, it's not actually uh, that hard. I mean, there are some areas where there's, uh, there's a little bit of question. Uh, but when you add it up, uh, you, uh, you will come to the numbers that I'm giving to you here. And uh, an easy way or a shortcut uh, for doing this is to start where the Hebrew calendar starts. So if you were to Google Hebrew, uh, the current date of the Hebrew calendar, uh, you would get this date, 5782. As of 2022, we are now in 5782, meaning that that's how long the world has existed. And uh, that particular can- calendar is also called the Cedar Olam Rabbah. Okay? And uh, here's how they're getting their calculation. They start with uh, <clears throat> creation, uh, from creation to Christ, you have uh, 3,760 years plus the current year, 2022. And that gives you then uh, this number, 5782. 5782. And again, if you were to Google that, it'll, it'll pop right up. If you say current year based on the Hebrew calendar, 5782. That's what they're telling you. They believe based on going to the Bible and looking at it and adding it all up, they will tell you, Uh, that the earth is currently 5,782 years old. Okay, adjustments for discrepancies or errors in that Hebrew or Jewish calendar. I want to give you two. Uh, The first is this. You need to add 165 years to that. Why do I say that? Well, uh, conventional or scholarly 
uh, research determines the, the destruction of the first temple to be 586 BC versus the incorrect date used by the Hebrew calendar of 421 BC. And the explanation for that uh, is uh, beyond the scope of what we're talking about here now, but you could look that up and uh, you'll see that it's a, uh, it's reasonable what they did, but they essentially reversed engineered back into that rather than using uh, documentation to support that. That, however, that other date, 586, does have the necessary documentation to uh, essentially uh, make it pretty sure that that is the date. Josephus, one of the early uh, Jewish historians there in the first century, also confirms this date as well as uh, many other sources, including Babylonian sources, which... Uh, were the ones that destroyed that temple, Solomon's temple. Okay, and you'll see that in the footnote there. I've given you some of the uh, of the different sources that have been used to corroborate this particular uh, this particular uh, date, 586. Okay, so the difference between those two, 586 versus 421, means that we need to add an additional 165 years to our date of 5782. Okay, the other one is an addition of 29 years, 29 years, and that because and uh, the good news is, is that the Hebrew calendar uh, and those who put this together many centuries ago, uh, when they put it together, they detailed what they were using to do so. And the date or the uh, <clears throat> the, the time frame that they used for the uh, for the for the Jewish captivity was the 400 years uh, was the 400 years uh, spoken of in Genesis 15 verse 13 versus the 430 years that we're told that they were actually there in Exodus chapter 12. And the other just small discrepancy there is, is that when you start with Genesis 15, uh, which is the time that uh, we received this portion of the prophecy as it related to those things when it was given to Abraham, Abraham is now 100 years old. It's at the time of Isaac's birth versus uh, when uh, that 430 years begins, which was actually when uh, before Isaac at 99. So th that's why it's not 30 years, it's 29. But again, you need to add 29 years uh, to that calendar, uh, the Hebrew calendar. And uh, putting all of that together uh, gives us our total, 5976. 5976 or 24 years away from the end or the return of our king, 5976. And both of those are, are, are again, uh, and I would encourage you to do the research. You'll see uh, these are not things that are just me now finding ways to get, to get us closer, okay? The 165, again, uh, based on the research, I actually bought a book this week just so that I would have it in my library. It cost me 62 bucks. Uh, but where they go through all of this and all the documentation uh, for this particular date, the 586 uh, date, even that alone puts you at 5950. So think of it in terms of a storm. If I say, well, there's a storm coming between 50 and 25 years. When are you going to start to get ready? You're 26. <laughs> You're going to be like, if it, <laughs> if it can come in 25 years, I'm going to get ready then, right? Okay, uh, the 29, and that's not because the, the 29 years here is uh, uh, less uh, convincing, uh, but just to tell you, just the, the 165 alone puts you within 50 years, within 50 years. And then adding the 29, of course, gets us to where I'm telling you now, you're within 25 to 24 years, okay? So that's our date. 
Number three. Again, remember, this is my evidence for telling you what I told you at the beginning. The Bible confirms the seventh day of earthly rest or the Sabbath to be symbolic of the eternal rest of the new world at the end of human history. So we've seen, I think, from the evidence that uh, the Jews, as well as the early Christians, viewed those first six days or the six days of creation uh, to be symbolic of the thousands of years or the 6,000 years that uh, this world would exist. Well, the Bible confirms, so the Bible now, uh, without using non-canonical sources, I I, I could go there as well, by the way, there's plenty of non-canonical sources to uh, speak to uh, what I'm saying right now, but the Bible confirms this, uh, that the seventh day is to be considered uh, symbolic of our eternal rest in the new world at the end of human history. And where I'm getting that from is Hebrews chapter 4. This is how the author of Hebrews speaks about uh, that seventh day or the Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 4, verses uh, 4 through 11. I'll just read those uh, quickly for you. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day today, saying that through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, which means, notice, so long afterward, the original day, even the day that uh, they were to enter in the promised land, which was also considered a form of rest. That's what he's talking about in verse 6. Well, after, long after that, in the words clearly quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, meaning that second generation that he took into the land, God would have not spoken of another day later on, meaning through the uh, prophet or the words of David. So then there remains a Sabbath rest, For the people of God, a future, in other words, Sabbath rest. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did his. Well, what the author is uh, talking about here and calling us to uh, strive to enter. Well, that's verse 11. Sorry, I didn't read it. But notice, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as those uh, prior generations. The rest that he's referring to, the one again that we are to be striving to enter into, is the eternal rest. That should be uh, pretty obvious just based on the reading here. But that is the context. That is what the, uh, the author is getting at. The eternal rest of the new world to come. And so here we have Scripture, at the very least, confirming that that's how we're to look at the seventh day. Okay, So the point not to miss, the Bible confirms all seven days related to creation to be symbolic and important indicators of when this world will end and the new world will begin. The six, according to what we see in 2 Peter 3.8 and the support that we have for that. And then here also as it relates to the seventh, seventh. Number four, Jesus predicted he would return before the date predicted by the Jews. This also, I believe, is uh, evidence supporting my conclusion. 
Jesus predicted that he would return he would return before the date predicted by the Jews. So now going, uh, dipping into uh, that uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 that I told you is uh, so, so important to uh, understanding uh, this particular issue or determining uh, when the time is near. Jesus predicted he would return before the date predicted by the Jews. Picking it up then in verse 43, but know this, that if the master of the house, look at verse 42, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour when you do not expect. Remember, we don't know the day or the hour. It doesn't mean we don't know how many years. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, he's not coming for much longer, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drinks with drunkards, the master of the servant will come on him at an hour when he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites in the place that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a reference to hell. We know that we have that uh, in other places to support that. Who's the audience here? Well, who's the primary audience? Well, the primary audience is or are the Jews. Going back up to verse 34, this generation, the generation of the Jews. So Jesus' warning is uh, first and foremost to the Jew. That's who he's speaking about when he says, the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not expect. What did the Jews, or what do the Jews rather, currently expect? That Messiah is not coming for another 218 years based on 5782. Because their date is wrong, their master is delayed. They believe it's 5782, when in reality, it's 5976. They believe there is more time than there really is. Again, my master is delayed. Remember, that's what Jesus says. He warns them that this is going to happen. Which means that when Jesus comes, and here's our thief in the night uh, phrase that we saw in 2 Peter 3. Remember that? When Jesus comes, he says, he will surprise them in that way, like a thief in the night. A thief you didn't know was going to come. Tonight. And so I, I believe this too uh, is a piece or a part of the evidence supporting my conclusion, 5976. We know, based on what Jesus says here in these verses or this portion of his Olivet Discourse, that whatever the date the Jews think he's coming, it will be before that. Okay? And that because the date they believe it is, is 218 years too early. The world is much older than they think, or that much closer to year 6,000. Number five, the fifth line of support for my conclusion, the church is beset with apostasy and the world filled with false prophets preaching an antinomian lawless. That's 
what antinomy refers to, antinomos, lawless, gospel that produces a disloyal faith. You're not loyal when there is no law, just as Jesus predicted would be true when the end of the world is near. The church is beset, meaning today, with apostasy. All kinds of people leaving the church, right? Going apostate. And the world is filled with all kinds of false prophets, false Christian prophets, in other words, preaching a gospel that says you don't have to obey God's law, which produces a disloyal faith. And all of these things, apostasy, false prophets, preaching this uh, antinomian gospel, and this gospel producing disloyalty, all three of these things are predicted by Jesus as the true signs, the things that we are to be looking toward uh, to know that the end of the world is near. And again, we're going to our primary text to do that, or the primary text as it concerns Jesus, Matthew 24. Look at verses 1 through 8. Here's where we find, again, remember the question. Jesus left the temple and was going on his way when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered, you see all these, do you not know? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left or one stone left here upon another that will not be thrown down. I'm reading this now to, to let you see that there's... The context of this includes more than just his final return. Uh, Why will there not be one stone left upon another? Because uh, Jesus is speaking already or alluding to his first return, the 70 AD destruction of that second temple in Jerusalem. And so they asked the question, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will all these things be? Not one stone left upon another. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And really there, you can break that up. What will be the sign of your coming in this respect, but also the sign of the end of the age? Which means that what Jesus does in answering the question, he's answering more than one time frame or period of time. Which, by the way, if you know anything about how prophecy works, this is the way it works. Uh, Most prophecy has multiple fulfillments in Scripture. A good example of this is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and the virgin shall be with child. That first refers to, in its immediate context, with that immediate audience, which it's always relevant to the immediate audience first, uh, to uh, Isaiah's baby. But we know it in its more superlative form. It refers to Jesus, born of the virgin Mary. And so it is here. What Jesus says speaks both to 78 AD, some aspects, And some of the aspects of what he says speak to his final return. And so there again, as I said, in relation to the first generation, they did not pass away. What was going to take place as it related to 70 AD, it's about 34, 35 AD at the time that he speaks this. Uh, They would still be alive at the destruction of the temple. So as it related to the first, that's where that would uh, be uh, relevant. But again, you have two things overlapping here, one that is more immediate and one that is yet future. And Jesus now is going to speak to the future. How do we know that? Because of all the things he says will happen first. And Jesus answered them, verse 4, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ or the King, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Notice there's a lot of things taking place there, which tells us that uh, what he's speaking to now is uh, the latter fulfillment of this uh, particular prophecy. 
But notice also, he says, these are not the things to look at if you want to know when I'm coming back. All the uh, the cataclysmic stuff, right? Earthquakes, weather getting bad, wars, that kind of stuff. He says, don't look at that. Here's what you need to look at. Then they will de- deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many, during this period of time, will fall away, literally go apostate. We see this word used throughout Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and uh, uh, that's what it's referring to. To fall away means to go apostate. Here's how you know when the end is near. You're going to be very unpopular in the world. Your, Your gospel, those of you who are doing it right, the world will hate you. And many among your own ranks, are going to go apostate and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise, meaning within Christianity, and lead many astray. How will they lead them astray? Well, by what they preach. What do they preach? Verse 12, because lawlessness, anti-namos, from which we get the term antinomianism from. They will preach lawlessness, and because that has increased, many false prophets preaching an antinomian, you don't need to obey, you just need to believe gospel. The love, the loyalty of many will grow cold. No law, no loyalty. No law, no loyalty. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom... Which, by the way, I believe the gospel that he's speaking about there in verse 14 is not the true gospel, but the false gospel that these many prophets will speak. Will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony of their destruction to all the nations. And then the end, notice, will come. Well, again, and maybe what I've got here is a form of confirmation bias. Maybe I'm just reading something into something because I want it to be that way. But from my vantage point, the church is beset with apostasy. The true church. And the world filled with people preaching a gospel that says, nice but not necessary. You don't need to obey. And loyalty, well, what is it produces it regards loyalty? A very disloyal faith. That's what I see. What do you see? Nobody wants to hear it. As a matter of fact, they hate us when they hear what Jesus really says. That too, I believe, is support that we are indeed living in the last days. That the end of the world is near. Let me finish with... Some other considerations, you'll see them as additional considerations or possible evidence. You'll see the question mark there. It's up to you whether you want to believe what I'm telling you here. Uh, the second one is uh, is my opinion. I could be absolutely off base and wrong on it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. The first, Ecclesiastes 1.9, Solomon says this, after observing everything that happens, he says there's nothing New under the sun. Based on the pattern of redemptive history recorded in the book, we serve a God whose future plans always have precedent in the past. 
God's future plans always have precedent in the past, meaning there's repetitiveness, there's redundancy. Using that Isaiah text again, the virgin will be with a child. Well, how is right? redundancy? God's future plans have precedent. It's already taken place in the past. A couple more examples of this. Numbers 14. Numbers 14.34. According to the numbers of days in which you spied out the lands, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall... So God says, because it took you 40 days and because you disobeyed me, now you're going to be stuck in your land. You don't get to go to the promised land for 40 years. He used for his future plans uh, what's already happened. That's what sets precedent for what he does. And and that's all over the Bible, is it not? Think about it. That's why I say we serve an OCD God or we serve a, a redundant God in this way. Matthew 12, 40, similar words. Matthew 12.40. Here Jesus, speaking this way, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Future plans. The future plans are based on similar acts in the past. This is our God. This is how he operates. We see it throughout redemptive history. Why would it be any different with one of history's most important events then? Believing the end of the world to be arbitrary or without a basis in something similar that God has already done. For example, the days of creation and the day of rest being symbolic of creation's time, the end of the world and eternity. To believe that that can't mean that, Or that when God comes is totally arbitrary is to believe in a different God. Because everything that God does, it seems like, from what I read in this book, always his future plans have precedent in the past. Second consideration as it relates to this uh, final point. John 18, 37 and 38. John 18, 37 and 38. And Pilate said to Jesus, So you are a king. They called him a Christ. Pilate knew that that meant king. So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Well, by definition, truth is agreement with reality. Pilate doesn't want to agree with the reality that Jesus has just spoken to him, probably because it was uh, beyond his rational mind. I have come for this purpose. Notice in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. This is beyond, uh, again, Pilate's rational mind. And so he says, what is truth? Jesus, in responding to this or first speaking about 
speaking to the truth is essentially saying this. This is truth. This is agreement with reality, whether you like it or not. This is how you need to think about things. And as God's people, we are called to be people of truth. Here's the irony in that. To be people of truth now requires that we address as reality what at one time was considered fantasy or science fiction. What am I talking about? The existence of UFOs. Never thought I'd be up here saying that without some kind of a tinfoil hat on. (laughs) Why do I say this is reality or truth? Well, based on what we know, Here are the sources. The U.S. Department of Defense, the Navy, and the Pentagon have all released statements and some video footage from the cockpits of Navy fighter pilots confirming 144 sightings since 2004. Some of you have kept up on this uh, 60 Minutes, which is a very reputable uh, TV program that deals with news, uh, even hosted some of these pilots. Here's what one was quoted as saying, every day uh, they would see these uh, UAPs or UFOs every day for at least a couple of years. These are credible men that are now making these statements. Navy ships have been swarmed by UFOs off the Pacific coast and caught on radar. You'll see uh, some of the sources there. I've cited them for you in that third footnote. The first comes from the Washington Post. This is not the propaganda magazines, in other words. This is not the inquirer. Okay. Uh, Christopher Mellon, who is the intelligence uh, chief for the uh, Department of Defense for our United States government, has come forward about this. He was handed uh, the files on three of these uh, videos, and uh, he is the one who has admitted now, uh, he's admitted to leaking that when this all thing, when this thing kind of all blew up to the New York Times, another reputable. Uh, news source. This individual, a reputable person, which means as the church, if we are truly people of truth, if we're in agreement with reality, then we have to deal with this. We have to give an answer to this. Here's what I believe that answer is according to what the Bible says. Revelation 20. We read these words. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon. By the way, if you were here or part of the Revelation study, I talked about how in the first verse of chapter one, we're told that the language in the book of Revelation, that we're to view it as symbolic language. And so that would include here this idea of a great chain and so on and so forth. We're to discern what is meant by that. And I'll tell you what I believe it means here in just a second. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it over him and sealed him in it, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ, the king, for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy 
is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of the King Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, the reason I read that was because of the, really the first part there. He's put into this otherwise known as the abyss. And when the thousand, of year, the thousand years are ended, that being again symbolic, not literal here, notice what it says. Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. They surrounded, notice, the camp of the saints, which means that the camp of the saints must be pretty small. As a matter of fact, that's how that, uh, that phrase is used throughout the Bible. The idea of surrounding someone means that they're, they're very small now or limited in numbers. They surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. It was over just like that. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it, etc., etc. So this is the end of human history. And before the end of human history, Satan has to be let out of his prison to come again and to make war against the church, as we're told that is his ultimate goal in Revelation chapter 12. And he will come and he will do that. He will surround the holy city. Well, putting that all together, here's what I think is one possibility. Again, opinion as it relates to the UFOs. UFOs may be a sign that Satan and his armies are coming out of the abyss. An event, sorry, it should be, event there, an event that must take place before our king's return. Now, that's uh, what we're being told here. And if you were to work through Revelation, you would see that that's something that, that has to happen. So another big sign or event, an event that must take place before our king's return, how this event possibly relates then to UFOs. The demons have created biosuits, biosuits, technology, vessels, Allowing them to escape the fourth dimension. We know that where they're currently at is in the fourth dimension, the spiritual dimension. They lost, do you remember our study in Genesis 1, or Genesis 3 rather, but Genesis 1 through 3, and the fall, and the belief that they lost their physical bodies. We have some of this, by the way, recorded in some of these non-canonical books. The losing of that uh, third dimensional body. This is why Jesus says in John 4 that God doesn't have a body. He does. He just doesn't have a physical three-dimensional body. He doesn't have a body in this world. That's Jesus's point. Well, they can't come into this world without, uh, without commandeering then a body, a physical form. We know that. That's called demon possession. And so the only way to, to really be in this space again requires either they do that, which is messy. We know that. Those who they possess fight against them. So is it so strange to think that maybe they have, after all of this time, over in their dimension, which there's no reason to believe that their dimension isn't full of resources just like our dimension, and for thousands of years, they haven't been working on technology and vessels just like we do in our dimension so that we can travel to places that we would otherwise not be able to travel to in the space, under the water, in the ocean. And they have been creating both bio suits to do that and vessels to do that, to escape their dimension. 
and that they will soon permanently invade our space, the third dimension. That's what I believe Revelation 20 is speaking about. Hence the reason for the increase in frequency of sightings and the number of vessels encountered. We're not just seeing one anymore, and as the, uh, the pilot Ryan Graves states, every day for at least a couple of years, we're seeing multiple now vessels. Is it possible? Is it possible? I think it is. We have to address the issue. You say, well, I don't think that's what it is. What is it? What is it? They're coming Soon they will uh, be here. Hence again, the increase or for the increase, both in frequency and number of vessels. You'll see a, a footnote there from a military perspective. How do we view these things or how does the military view these things when we have uh, frequency? Well, uh, is it possible that uh, all these sightings that go back uh, very far in history, at least recorded history for us, the, the, uh, our government has had these files for some time. Is it possible that these, uh, these first were test flights? Just like we sent test flights into space. And as we uh, advance in our technology, we can stay longer and longer. Is it possible that those first vessels were test flights? And now the reason that we're seeing a frequency or more of them and more of them is a sign of a coming invasion. I'll give you a perfect example of this. This is how our military looks at things. This is how all military looks at things. The troop and tank buildup on the border of the Ukraine uh, starting in November of last year. What's happening in the Ukraine right now with the invasion of Russia just didn't happen overnight. They've been building up forces on the borders of the Ukraine since at least November of last year. We knew the invasion was coming because from a military perspective, that's how you interpret that. Shouldn't we be interpreting the same thing as it relates to whatever these UFOs or UAPs are? Now, let me go take it one step further. My opinion, and again, all of this is really my opinion, but what does that mean? They invade. They reveal themselves to us. Here's what I think. I think they will in this uh, particular frame of time. Could be wrong. Could be wrong about this, uh, this piece that doesn't change the 6,000 years. Uh, but if I'm right, it is possible that Satan will reveal himself and his demons as mankind's original freedom, uh, freedom fighters and unite the world. Remember what it says, deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth. That's uh, four corners of the earth refers to the entire world. Deceive them. Where am I getting original freedom fighters from? Well, what happened in the garden? They show up and they don't hide their identity. They say, yeah, I'm Satan. You've been preparing for me anyway with all of your Avengers movies and, and all of this about the number one thing that every human being deserves is freedom. And that's what we wanted to give to you. We've been marked out as the bad guys all these years for thousands of years. That horrible God who has you under his thumb. You might refer to him as Thanos, the giver of death. We tried to free you from that, just like I tried to free my brothers who are with me now. We tried to free you from him. We were the original freedom fighters for your freedom. 
And he cast us into the fourth dimension, but we're back now. And by the way, we've come with gifts, healing cancer, and doing great things as Second Thessalonians 2 says he will do. And if we work together, if humanity will unite together, maybe, just maybe, we can beat this God. I think it's possible, and I think uh, if the world heard that kind of a message today, they would all cheer. We knew it. God's the bad guy. Satan's the, you see, spin it, just spin it. He's the freedom fighter. Don't you want him? He just always wanted you to be the one that made the decisions for your life and not somebody else. We need to stand against this king. And by the way, we need to stand against those who support this horrible God. Uh, We need to surround the camp of the saints, God's people, and they're small in number by now. We can do it. It will be the Tower of Babel, part two. What do I say that? Well, Gog and Magog refers to Babylon. Uh, If you were to go back to Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, no mystery there. Gog and Magog is just a part of, of Babylon. Gog was the uh, central city or the uh, capital of Magog, which was just an old name for Babylon. And where do we get the uh, term Babylon from? Well, what that original city used to be called, Babel. The Tower of Babel or Babel in Genesis 11. Remember what they did or why they built that tower? To rush in and to cut God's head off. We'll build it tall enough to get to heaven and uh, we'll rush in and we'll take God on his throne And to do that, they were united, speaking all the same tongue, which is what our world has become again now, a global community through the Internet. We may not all speak the same tongue, but we can all share information again with each other. Those barriers have now been removed, and all we need is one good leader to truly unite us against our common enemy and foe, God. Psalm 2, to remove these shackles from us so that we can shake our fists together corporately again and to build our tower with Satan and his freedom fighters' help to heaven. Who then are Satan and uh, the demons in this scenario? Well, they're the Avengers. Remember again, Thanos, he's the bad guy, right? Isn't that how the world looks at God? You see all of this preparing the soil, and again, maybe it's just confirmation bias on my part, but... Satan already is the ruler of this world in the sense that he is the one influencing what takes place. And no doubt he has been preparing the soil for a very long time to get us ready for that very thing. For his return, for the great deceiving that will happen. And as Jesus says, many more will fall away and be duped as a result of it. So what is our expected response? Well, here's what I believe it is. Three things. Stand firm. Stand firm. Don't be shaken from your position when the people, events, and beliefs of this world become even more crazy, polarized, and opposed to God, God's word, and God's people. Jesus spoke of this in John 15, 18, uh, all the way into 16, verse 4, when he said essentially this, I tell you these things ahead of time so that when they come, you will not fall away. We know these things. When things get real crazy, when the Avengers show up on the scene, That's not a reason to party. We're not in a Marvel movie. Stay focused. Stay focused. 
See the next 25 years as the time to complete your given mission from Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Guys, we got limited time here. 25 years, and uh, I would suggest that we have a countdown in our church based on what I've taught here today. 25 years, what will you accomplish in each year for our king? Divide and conquer. What are you going to do this year? What are you going to do next year? And you start tallying that up just as Paul did and was able to say at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, there is laid up for me because of that a crown. The king's coming back. He will not be delayed. What are you doing? See, this gives us a very nice roadmap to say, I've got 25 years. What will I accomplish? Am I living? Finally, sound forth. Our witness to others should start with what we believe about the imminent. Here's an example of what you could say. We believe our king, King Jesus, is 25 years to destroy his enemies in this world. In his mercy, he has sent his messengers to proclaim peace to those who will swear allegiance to him and his church now. That's always been the message. As a matter of fact, Jesus preaches this in some of his parables, right? A master went off to inherit a distant, comes back, or he's coming back to his land, and uh, uh, those who will bow their knee and swear allegiance to him, he will cease to, but those who don't, no mercy. And in this case, we are the messengers, uh, the envoys that have been sent ahead of this king who will come from a distant land. He's coming within the next 25 years. Are you ready? The people you speak to, are you ready? We believe this. He's coming back. And when he comes back, the only people that will be at peace with him are those who have bowed their knee now and sworn their allegiance to him and his church. By the way, last days are the theme common to all past revivals or church growth movements. Now, some of you know that I preached the majority of this already at the uh, camping trip several years back at uh, Wellington Lake. So you know that that's not the reason I'm doing this now. I'm not sitting here uh, saying to you that, well, we, we need to do this because that's good and that's a, that's a great way to grow your church. But as additional evidence, because some of you are, are, are uh, something to think of, not evidence, Additional food for thought. Do you know that that's how churches in the past or through history have grown? This has been one of the key sparks to revival. Uh, What is that? Preaching on last days. This is how dispensationalism grew many moons ago. Behind movement. I remember going to churches behind videos where uh, they had put all of this into kind of a sci-fi movie. This uh, was a big part of what they used to call big tent meetings or big tent revivals. Churches, uh, it's really interesting when you look at smaller churches, uh, every summer they would have what they called the summer swell. And that was when their, their membership logs would grow so that their membership would rise in the summertime. And then over the the, 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 the following months, it would, it would be depleted little by little, little by little until they got to the summer again, and then it would swell back up. And the reason why is because in those days, they had traveling evangelists. And every summer, the evangelists would come to these churches, and they would put a tent outside, and everybody would meet. And always, always guaranteed, they actually still do this in the South, always guaranteed the last message on the last day uh, was a last day's message urgency to everything that the uh, the evangelists had spoken and at that time people realized whoa i can't waste time 
And so uh, people would uh, get saved or be baptized. And so uh, that's why the church would uh, swell in membership uh, during uh, those times. Why? Why is that the case, this kind of preaching? Uh, why is it effective? Because you may be thinking, well, if we tell people this, they're really going to think we're crazy. First of all, we really don't care about that anyway. At least we shouldn't. But if you don't think that this works, again, I've just given you some of the past here history, but let me tell you something about people in general. It's something that uh, I wish it wasn't true, but it is true. People are curious about the end. The number one book in the Bible has been forever the book of Revelation. You advertise that you're preaching the book of Revelation and people will come to your church because they're that curious to hear about the book of Revelation. People are curious about the end. Let me tell you something that I learned um, as part of sales. And this is all built on, uh, today at least it is, on uh, studies that have even been done in social science to uh, confirm this. Curiosity is the first and greatest key of all persuasion. Did you know that? Curiosity. Meaning that if you can make somebody curious about what you are saying, uh, then it makes it much easier than to convince them or to build confidence with the information that you then give. And that is essentially what's happening when you speak about these types of things. You are sparking curiosity. You tell people you need to be obedient to Jesus and they just they dismiss you right immediately. They're not curious after you say that. They're curious about where the door is, right? They're like, oh, boy. You say, um, we have strong evidence to prove that Jesus is coming back in 25 years. I guarantee you that the response you're going to get is, tell me. Right? Even though they may think you're crazy, they're going to want to know why you think that, aren't they? There's curiosity. So it's up to you then uh, to build the confidence through information sharing, through education of what we've talked about here. Hence the reason we all need to know or to put to memory what is being taught here. Remember what I told you? What I'm going to do for the rest of March is I'm in or I'm going to train you or equip you for those community groups that will start in May. This is a part of it. This isn't something that you hear today and uh, you talk about without the knowledge to other people so that you look like a fool. Curiosity that can't be supported uh, with, with, with valid evidence or information just makes you look more like a fool. It's dangerous, but it's also highly effective. So know what we've uh, talked about here today. And if you're still not convinced or you have questions, please uh, come and talk to me about it. But this is a part of, beloved, what we're talking about doing, about you doing. The place you should start is we really believe Jesus is coming back within the next 25 years. Why? I guarantee you no one's going to be like, oh, whatever. I'm not talking to you anymore. <laughs> I don't care. They're going to be like, tell me why. I need to know why now. I'm curious. You got my curiosity? Okay, tell me. And if you come with this evidence, as far as I'm concerned, how can you speak against it? Right. Now, let me tell you this. Let me just warn you as you start to look some of this up. And this is another one of these uh, axioms. Uh, the truth lies behind or, or lies in the bottom of a pile of quacks is that you're going to find all kinds of quackery as it relates to this issue. Don't be deterred by that. 
Okay. Just because a lot of the stuff that's just like the UFO stuff. I heard uh, some of you've listened to David Fravor talk about this, who's the uh, top gun pilot that it was the one that encountered that first, what they called the tic tac. Uh, and I've heard him talk on this and he said, I never thought that I would be talking about these things because, you know, UFO and this stuff is filled with a bunch of quacks, crazy people. And he says, still to this day, he goes, I've been to some of them where I've spoken on some of this stuff. And he said, and it's still filled with the majority of what's there is just junk. But that doesn't mean that there isn't truth there also. And uh, so keep in mind what we're talking about or what I've talked with you about today and what we haven't talked about. Because I'm aware of all the other stuff, the 120 Sabbaths and the 50 years and all that blah, blah, blah junk. Focus in on what we're talking about here today. And, and know it enough to where you can share this with somebody else. If the piece, if there's anything that you, you, you would be probably wise, at least on the front end, to leave off, and, and definitely don't start with this, is the UFO stuff. Okay? But the other stuff, that's why I said other things to consider. Okay? 6,000 years for creation. 6,000 years, and the year that we're in is 5976. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we've had time to do this. I thank you that I can speak openly about these things with your people. I pray that they would now take the time. No one just learns something in one sitting, that we would love our king enough to take the time to now be equipped with what we've learned, which means that we, we know it in a way that we can speak intelligently and persuasively about it to others. Pray for the boldness to do that. We understand, though, uh, that that requires first obedience on our part. Uh, to do it. Make it so to the glory of our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.